Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, the COVID outbreak raging in our state's prisons. We'll meet a man recently released from San Quentin, where the virus has infected at least half the prison population. And that's what really breaks my heart, and that's what society does not see. We're talking about human beings, after all. We're talking about people who've been through a lot and who continue to suffer. But first, letters from family members to their loved ones in prison, relatives they haven't been able to visit for months. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Dear Danny, I miss you, man. I'm thinking about you a lot these days and hoping that you're safe. The idea that my exceptionally bright and curious and compassionate cousin could be killed by COVID sweeping through a prison feels like one more injustice in a long string of them. I remember playing soccer together and wrestling as kids. We had that same insatiable desire to run around, and you were unendingly kind and patient with your little cousin when I wanted to tag along. I remember being seven or eight and roughhousing together. I accidentally pushed you into my mom's living room window and it broke. You took responsibility for it. You said the broken window was your fault. You were loving and protective and all the things someone could hope for in an older cousin. It seems profoundly unfair that you started using as a kid that your mom was an addict, and that you've spent more than half your life in different versions of incarceration without having committed a violent crime. I try hard to remember that as unfair as your situation feels, there are other people who are worse off, and that even within troubled institutions, there's kindness, and there are people who are trying their best to keep you safe. I wish you could be out in the world right now. It's terrible and chaotic in lots of ways, but there are also signs of humanity and progress that I really wish you could see. Here's hoping that day comes very soon. Love, Dario. Hi, Daddy. I miss you. I've been waiting to see you. I just want COVID to go away. I miss our time together on weekends. I'll always look forward to our time together. I miss the most our family visits I miss the time we went camping at family visit. You put your jacket on the floor outside. We will talk under the stars and listen to the coyotes howl. And you told me, don't worry. I miss that you would hug me, kiss me, goodnight. I miss helping you make breakfast. I miss you. I miss your face, your hugs. I miss your kisses and love. Love you, Daddy. Have a good day.
Dear son, as you sit in your cell quarantined after testing positive for COVID-19, I want to take a moment to let you know how loved you truly are. I am very proud of the way you are working to become your authentic self. I am sure this will lead to inner happiness. Know that you are in my thoughts and heart at all times. I think about you often and miss having you here with us. Just remember to stay well and focused. Love, Mom. Dear him, dear Anthony, it's been a long four months, starting to go a little stir-crazy. Calls seem shorter with more time in between, which isn't at all the case. It just feels that way. I pulled out old letters last night. My favorite ones are the ones from the end of November 2017 to the middle of January 2018. I laid in bed with the white and black box, you know, the one I keep all your letters in, and just read for like two hours straight. I read letters. I looked at cards, games we've played. I get letters from you now, and I don't open them right away. I used to rip right into them. When I get one now, I hold on to it, knowing that new words are the best words. Silly, right? But it is what it is. I hold on to them sometimes for a couple of days even. Hey, look, I know this crappy virus and shutdowns and cancel visits have been hard, and I know some days are harder than others, but I really couldn't do this with anybody else. I know this has been getting to the both of us, and the time apart is frustrating. I know you miss the kids, and we all miss you, but this isn't forever, and I can't think of two people that got this more than we do. We will look back on this one day and be so grateful to know we can survive just about anything. And hey, it's a hell of a love story to tell our grandkids one day. It's 9.30 at night now. The kids just went outside. I plan on working until probably 1 in the morning and then going to bed. I just wanted to make sure that I got off a letter to you and reminded you that I love you. This moment in our lives will one day just be a memory. But it'll be the memory of how we got through the biggest thing that has happened in our lifetime and for at least 100 years before this. I love you more than all of the words and all of the books and all of the world. Love her. Love, Alicia. content of those letters are so eerily familiar to uh, what I used to write to my sisters and my family. Um, and so immediately that just took me right back in that very, very little cell. Um, you know, I lived in a cell that was about four foot, four feet by nine feet wide. And I was on the top bunk when I used to write my letters. And the ceiling when I would lay down on my bunk was three feet from my face. So it really felt like a coffin already. Adnan Khan knows what it's like to be inside San Quentin very well. He spent the last four years of his prison sentence there. And last year, he was the first person to be released when a new state law challenged the criteria that allowed prosecutors to lock him up for a murder he didn't actually commit during a robbery. While he was at San Quentin, Adnan founded a filmmaking project in the prison where incarcerated men tell their own stories and an organization called Restore Justice, that promotes restorative justice workshops and provides legal help to people who are incarcerated. And he's now executive director of that organization based in Los Angeles. Adnan, you've been really vocal about what's been happening at San Quentin with the outbreak of COVID-19. How did you first start hearing about people getting sick inside? When the pandemic started back in March, um, the fears immediately for myself and our organization and the advocates went straight to the prisons because 
what we were being told by CDC and their guidelines are not applicable to correctional settings, right? Six foot physical distancing and hand sanitizer, even ability to wash your hands with soap and the limit, uh, limitations of soap that there are in prisons. And when the botch transfer happened, uh, that just blew us away. So one of the biggest and largest outbreaks in a California prison, uh, state prison was in Chino. And them in Lancaster had the biggest, deadliest outbreak. And so somebody, somewhere, many people uh, point fingers, but a big transfer happened to a couple of prisons, but particularly uh, approximately 120 some odd people were transferred from Chino prison to San Quentin State Prison. And within a week, the, the flare up of COVID happened in San Quentin. Well, so many of the men at San Quentin, you know, have been serving really long sentences, decades inside, and some of them are, you know, just the dictionary definition of vulnerable populations. They're either aging, they've got serious medical conditions like heart disease, you know, cancer, uh, and, and the conditions are cramped. People are forced to breathe the same air. First of all, it's the oldest prison in California, um, you know, and so the ventilation is absolutely poor. Um, like I said, I spent four years in that facility. It's, it is dirty. There's mold. Um, it is very antiquated. And on top of that, the people, you're right, the demographic of people that are incarcerated in San Quentin are elderly, um, have chronic illnesses, which obviously take um, consistency in medical treatment over time. Also, there is a huge, uh, you know, a transgender population that we continue to forget. So there are men and women in San Quentin um, that are incarcerated, as well as obviously correctional officers and, and medical staff and kitchen cooks um, who all live there. Uh, another thing I want to say, a lot of people feel like, oh, that's just prison. Whatever happens inside, happens inside, it stays there. And that's how we infect our, our, our society out here um, by neglecting prisons inside. It's like, damn. It spread it, it spread it so fast that, that's like I was saying before, once it hits in here, it's going to go bad. And if that's exactly what happened. Once it spread it, it just, it just took over. This is Brian A.C. He's one of your friends still serving time inside San Quentin. No, I've been in prison. I've been in prison over 20 years, and I've never seen nothing like this before. I've never. This is, a, this is something out of a, a, a scary movie or something. It's terrible. Uh, so what, what Brian is saying is something that we've all been afraid of. He actually called me collecting uh, like when the pandemic first started, and he, he echoed exactly what we just heard right now. Three months later for it to come to fruition, um, it, it, is, it is extremely heartbreaking for me to hear. Uh, I know Brian. I know how he talks. I know, I know his sense of humor. I know his sarcasm. I know his love for people, his love for his uh, grandchildren. The inflections in his voice are of worry. That, that's not his normal um, speaking voice. Something's clearly bothering and scaring Brian. It's not only that I've done time with people. I have spent hours and hours in self-help groups listening to and sharing people's deepest traumas, uh, deepest pains. And I know what that did for the trajectory of their life. And that's what really breaks my heart. That's what society does not see. We're talking about human beings after all. We're talking about people who've been through a lot and who continue to suffer. So Adnan, when you hear the fear in the voices of people who are calling you from the inside, friends of yours, how do you feel? I mean, do you feel like you dodged a bullet by getting out before this pandemic started? Do you feel any guilt? 
Um, yes, the, I feel I feel helpless, um, and I do have I do feel survivor's guilt. Um, I've actually spoken with it, uh, about this topic with multiple formerly incarcerated people that I've spent time with, and then particularly for a lot of people who are out now. It seems like we did escape. You know, a lot of us um, were serving life sentences, and we either went to the parole board or were commuted by uh, uh, governors, or were um, um, like my situation. A piece of legislation changed, and I was immediately released. I really feel like I escaped death, and now a year later, um, there is this flare-up of this deadly, deadly virus that's just eating people up. People haven't seen their families for four months, heard from them. Um, you know, it, it's it's devastation that that we're seeing, not just what's happening inside, but an extension to them, which is their family. So when I see that, and here I am in the comfort of my home with my my wife and my my eleven week old child, um, it's such a privilege to be free. And so when people say this pandemic, we're on lockdown or quarantine, for me, I'm just so happy to do this lockdown here. You know, the comfort of my home with the cell phone, the laptop and a Netflix subscription, right? And people in there don't even have nowhere near that. So um, it's just, it, it is this, this feeling of helplessness, like what can we do? How do we help our, our friends? Well, one thing you have been doing is talking to people on the inside and, and amplifying those voices. Um, I'm thinking of a Facebook Live that you did recently with a man who is inside and whose prison job is to be an essential hospital worker. So recently I received a call from one of my good friends in San Quentin. His name is Anthony Ammons. Um, I know him better. We know him better as Ant. And he gets paid a dollar an hour to clean COVID areas. He was being forced to clean COVID areas. He couldn't refuse to clean it because he would get written up and that would affect his parole board hearing. And and so Ant um, gives me a call and tells me that he wasn't getting showers after coming back from work. And he and his cellmate had contracted COVID due to that. Three of us that were on a strike team had to clean 50 cells in one day. So I'm being, uh, I have tested positive for COVID-19. Um, as a hospital worker. Um, I have not heard back from Ant yet. And I, I just don't know what is happening. Is he is he okay now? Um, if he's recovered, is he going back to work and cleaning COVID areas again? Have they tested him again? Um, I, I just don't I just don't know. Hmm. How is the prison handling it when people do test positive for COVID? You know, what are what are their treatment protocols? I mean, it still seems like there is no plan. You know, I just know, like living in prison for 16 years, that the idea or the excuse of safety and security always eclipses any type of medical decision. Um, it feels like that's exactly what's happening right now inside there to where if someone does test positive, they're still mingled. I know people were tested who tested positive were put back in a cell with their cellmates who were who tested negative initially. After a lot of media pressure, they finally brought um, tents on the yard. People in dorms were told to sleep in opposite directions. So being diagonal creates six foot distance. Um, those are the solutions that I'm hearing. And, and those are not health solutions. Those aren't applicable um, or same as CDC guidelines, Center of Disease Control guidelines. I can hear the frustration in your voice. You know, it sounds like a lot of this outbreak could have been prevented. We know for other prisons have been infected by transfer. Susanville, Corcoran, Solano is now seeing a little bit of cases. I mean, there are there are places. Um, it's just a matter of time. Like, which one's the next one? 
Which one's the next Chino, next Lancaster? Which one's the next San Quentin? And so we're continuing to see a lack of public health responses across the prison system in California and par- and across the nation. People have been protesting outside the prison, you know, demanding that folks inside get released. Do you think the governor's plan to release 8,000 people who are incarcerated by August across California, is that enough to make a difference? Uh, no, because when you, need, when you need an urgent response to a pandemic, you do it immediately. August is too far. You know, if you were to say that I'm, we're releasing 2,000 people out of San Quentin, that would be a public health response. The only reason that we have a prison COVID problem is because we have a mass incarceration problem. There are so many people in prison and the way prisons are architecturally designed, you have the smallest spaces with the most amount of people, which is the the nemesis and the enemy of COVID-19. Or if you know, if you want to reframe it, the best friend of COVID-19 and its spread. I can't even imagine what people are actually experiencing in that cell um, and the family members who are experiencing as their day-to-day life, just wondering, thinking what, what's going on. And for a lot of families, it's been really hard to get information, right? I mean, they can't visit people inside, but are they being notified if people get sick with COVID? So what we're hearing is that people that are taken to the hospital, you know, they may have heard from their family maybe a month ago, maybe two months ago when they were running phones. Um, and now it's just like disappearance. Are they in the hospital? Are they on a ventilator? Like they just don't know. They have no idea. And you know, for you, can you, can you all imagine if um, last time a month ago you heard from your family and you have no idea that where they are or what's happening with them and you're terrified We're already hearing from family members of people on the outside whose loved ones are dying from COVID alone in hospitals and they're having to say goodbye over FaceTime or do Zoom funerals. What you're talking about is just the isolation amplified so much. Right. Um, And I don't know why that's okay, why that's acceptable. Even when you're sentenced to life in prison like I was, um, you still treat people with humanity. And the state and society should have a higher moral authority than the people that it condemns. Adnan, how does it feel now that you're a new dad and you have a new baby to hold that baby and to think about his future? You know, it's it's so emotional. Um, If there's any constant uh, of happiness in my life, it's um, my child and my wife. But even with that joy and happiness, when I look at him and at night when he's like half asleep, I don't know what society he's going to grow up in, you know, and, 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 you know, the best I can do is give him what wasn't given to me, which is consistent support, love and care. But as far as the world that he's going to grow up in, I can't, I can't control that. I I haven't found, I need to find a better balance to provide him, um, his attention that he deserves, as well as attention that the movement and, uh, our better world deserves. Adnan Khan was released last year from San Quentin State Prison, where he was serving a life sentence. He now lives with his wife and new baby in Los Angeles. We all know that people of color have been disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus. 
with frontline jobs that increase exposure and disparities like underlying health conditions that make COVID-19 worse. There's also a lot of racism baked into our healthcare system. Research shows that doctors' unconscious bias can hurt their patients. The California Report's health correspondent, April Demboski, tells us how this played out for one woman recently. In mid-March, Carla Montoroso had gone hiking in Zion with some friends. She flew home through the Las Vegas airport, and four days later, she started feeling sick. I had a full, bad, dry cough. It was like my lungs felt really sticky, and my fevers were ridiculous. 100.4, one. 101.2, 101.7, 102.3. She kneeled in the shower on all fours, ice-cold water on her back, willing her fever to go down. That night, I had written down in a journal letters to everyone, like, in case I died. She was sick for another month. Then came a new batch of symptoms. Like a headache. Headaches. We had shooting pains. In and sharp pain in her legs and abdomen. I had seen so many of the reports of people having strokes around my age range about blood clots and being really afraid of that. Still, she wasn't sure if she should go to the hospital. As like women of color, you get questioned a lot about your emotions and the truth of your physical state. You get called an exaggerator a lot throughout the course of your life. And so there was this weird, I don't want to go and use resources for nothing. It took four friends to convince her that she needed to call 911. But when she got to Alameda Hospital, her worst fears were validated. And the doctor came in and said, I don't think that much is happening here. I think we can send you home. Carla had a couple friends on the phone to help her, and they started asking questions. What about Carla's high heart rate, her low oxygen levels, her lips are blue? And he was like, I'm not doing this. He walked out of the room. He comes in, he wants to talk about my friend's tone and, like, my tone. Carla said she didn't want to talk about her tone. She wanted to talk about her health care. She was worried about blood clots in her leg, and she asked for a CT scan. And he was like, well, you know, the CT scan is radiation right next to your breast tissue. Do you want to get breast cancer? He didn't order the test. At nearly every turn, Carla says her concerns were dismissed. Her cycling oxygen levels? The machine's wrong. The shooting pain in her leg? Probably just a cyst. Carla just wanted to get out of there. Her friends picked her up and drove her to UCSF. And one of the nurses came in and she was like, I, you know, I heard about your ordeal. I just want you to know that I believe you and we are not going to let you go until we know that you are safe to go. And I started bawling <laughs> because that's all you want, right, is for, to be believed. And you spend so much of the process not believing yourself. And then to, like, not be believed when you go in, it's really hard to be questioned in that, in that way. Carla filed a grievance with Alameda Health System, and they invited her to come talk to their staff. They declined to comment for this story. Carla believes her experience is an example of why people of color are faring so badly in the pandemic. Because when we go and seek care, if we are advocating for ourselves, we can be treated as insubordinate. And if we are not advocating for ourselves, we can be treated as invisible. Experts say this happens routinely and regardless of the doctor's intentions or race. For example, Carla's doctor was not white. 
Dr. Renee Salazar is the assistant dean for diversity at the University of Texas at Austin Medical School. He says research shows every doctor, every human being, has biases they're not aware of. Do I question a white man in a suit who's coming in looking like he's a professional when he asks for payments versus a black man? Unconscious bias most often surfaces in high-stress environments like emergency rooms, where doctors have to make quick, high-stakes decisions. Add in a deadly new virus where the science is changing by the day, and things can spiral. There's just so much uncertainty. When complaints arise, Salazar says hospital supervisors generally do a bad job intervening. It's a hard conversation. I got to be careful. I don't want to say the race word because I'm going to I'm going to push some buttons here. Now serving one, three, seven at station number four. Kaiser Permanente takes a unique approach to uncovering bias among its providers. Dr. Ronald Copeland is Kaiser's chief of equity, inclusion and diversity. He says in the early days, doctors resisted training. It was viewed almost from a punishment standpoint. Doc, your patients in this persuasion don't like you, and you got to do something about it. And it's like you're a bad doctor, and so your punishment is you have to go get training. Now, Kaiser's approach is rooted in data from patient surveys. Now, these questionnaires don't ask if you think your doctor was racist, but they do ask if you feel respected. Trust building, empathy. If the communication was good communication effectiveness. Kaiser then breaks this data down by demographics to see if maybe a doctor gets good scores on respect and empathy from white patients, but not black patients. If you see a pattern evolving around a certain group and it's a persistent pattern, then that tells you there's something that from a culture or from an ethnicity, from a gender, something that group has in common that you're not addressing. Then the real work starts. Copeland says when you reframe the goal of training around getting better patient outcomes, Doctors want to do it. Folks don't flinch about it. They talk about it, and they're eager to learn more about it, particularly about how you mitigate it. Carla Montoroso wants to know how bias can be mitigated across the entire healthcare system. Alameda Hospital is public, and it doesn't have the kind of resources that Kaiser and UCSF do. But still, Carla is a CEO of a racial equity nonprofit. And she says even for her, it took an army of friends and activists fighting for her just to be heard. 90% of the people that are going to come through a hospital are not going to have what I have to fight that. And if I don't say what's happening, then people with much less resources are going to come into this experience and they're going to die. It's been more than three months since Carla first got sick and she's still not feeling well. She recently moved to L.A. so she could be near her family for her recovery. For The California Report, I'm April Domboski. And that's The California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. And hey, if you're a fan of the kinds of stories we bring you here on the show, we're looking for listeners like you to participate in a short survey so we can learn more about what you'd like to hear. You can help us out by visiting kqed.org slash tcrmagsurvey. That's kqed.org slash tcrmagsurvey. Special thanks this week to Nina Gensler-Debs, Eli Wirtschafter, and the team at KALW's podcast, Uncuffed. 
for sharing some of the letters they collected from family members with loved ones in San Quentin and Solano State Prisons. Our letter writers were Dario Abramskine, Jovina Vejar, Jamie Tafoya, and Alicia Montero. Thanks to Joanne Jennings, Kate Wolf, and Ted Goldberg for their help with our segment on San Quentin this week. The California Report's senior editor is Victoria Maleon. Our director is Amanda Font, and our technical producer is Rob Spate, with additional engineering from Seal Muller. Our team also includes Asala Sanapur, Erica Kelly, and Ariella Markowitz. I'm Sasha Koka. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Earth Justice, a national nonprofit law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment. Earth Justice, because the Earth needs a good lawyer. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing, through science, the interdependence of all living systems. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. 